Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who was to lead the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled death to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, Merry Christmas on this uh, first Sunday of Advent. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking about the haircut. I know it. And it was not my idea. I know you missed the curls, uh, but um, it was not my idea at all. In fact, I woke up when my wife had the clipper over my head and was just, while I slept, true story. So... If uh, you like the curls, she's got them in a baggie somewhere. So we uh, are here on Advent, and uh, we're going to be looking at our Christmas text, the first of our Advent series, which is going to be found in the book of Revelation, where we get to think about dragons and wars and attempted murders and so many other very Christmassy sorts of things. And so this will be fun. Now, here's the thing. 2020 simply won't relent. And I know a lot of you have felt this way. Its pressures do not yield. 
as soon as we make it over one hurdle, the next one appears not on the horizon, it appears right around the corner. And we move right into the very next challenge. I also know from talking with many, many of you that it isn't just what's going on globally. This has been a hard year for you without 2020. It's just been a hard year, personally, family, economically, your job situation, even apart from what has been going on around the planet. This is the kind of a year that, quite frankly, I don't feel like I need the eight-pound, six-ounce little baby Jesus in the manger. To me, it feels like I need the one that shows up here in the book of the Revelation. It's the one who shows up at the end of time and brings with him the fulfillment of so many promises. And Advent, the season that we mark starting today, is really the greatest time for us to be reflecting on that Jesus. In fact, Advent, the word, it uh, comes out of uh, the Latin and it means the coming or the arrival. And so the whole of this month is supposed to be preparing us in anticipation for the arrival of Jesus on Christmas. But there are at least three ways that Jesus advents with us. At least three ways that he arrives with us, right? He, he arrived 2,000 years ago in a manger, the incarnation, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That was one type of advent. But there's another type of advent that happens, right? He shows up to you personally, here, now. Maybe last week or last month, a year ago, as some of those testimonies that we've heard throughout the many baptisms we've done. Or maybe he is yet to show up, to arrive in your life in a significant way. But you see, there's another type of an advent. It's the one where he has arrived for us personally. That can happen at any time that you will yield yourself to him. There's a third type of Advent, and that is, of course, the one where he comes at the end of days. It's the Advent that we now are most interested in seeing fulfilled because of all of the promises of the scriptures. And the fact that that is the great Advent, what really sort of makes the Revelation the most, Christmas, the most Christmassy book in the whole Bible. And so we get to look at that through the whole of Advent series. So we start our Advent series with a chapter that has been called the theological center of the whole book of Revelation. Now I know for some of you guys, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you might be thinking, no, 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 it's 13. It's chapter 13. It's the mark of the beast. And that's the one where, where we really want to see it. Or you'll think, no, 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 it's the beginning. It's, it's chapters 2 and 3 because that's the churches. And those are the ones we teach about most often, the letters to the seven churches. And we'll be doing those starting next week. Or you might say, no, 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 it's the end of the book because that's the holy city coming down out of heaven from God and all of that. And that's, that's got to be the theological center. But really, this chapter that we're looking at here identifies the, really the, the, the theological heart of the whole book. See, God's... Advent has happened, it is happening right now, 
And in fact, it will happen in a final and a complete way at the end of time. So we are in verse 1. It was a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So now when you look at this text, you're going to see some, kind of some interpretation principles here that apply for lots of the images in the book of Revelation and in the prophetic literature in general. So in one way, the woman is clearly Mary, as in Mary of the Mary Joseph manger story, because, well, she gave birth to the child. And so in one way, this is the story of what was, but we also come to find out that the woman as she's described, also represents something more than just Mary. So in Genesis 37, Joseph, of like Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, so one of Israel's children, he had a dream. This is before all of the crazy stuff happened with him in Egypt. He was a young boy, a young teen, and he had a dream. And he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. So the, 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 the vision that Joseph had was actually of the whole nation of Israel being represented by the sun, the moon, and the stars. And this woman is clothed in those same ways. This isn't a coincidence. So this imagery of the woman actually is that she's not just an individual Israelite woman from 2,000 years ago. She's actually the whole people of God. She is the Israelite people, the Jewish nation. But then in the New Testament, we find out that the church is the new Israel. We have been grafted into the vine. And so, in fact, this woman in the Revelation is us. It's the church, the followers of Christ. Now, actually, when I say that, I mean it's us. It's not. So I know I, I kind of broad brush sometimes, and I know I kind of like, I shouldn't maybe do that all the time. But when I say us, I mean all of you who here today are followers of Jesus. I know that we always have folks here at the church that haven't yet decided to follow Jesus, and you're kind of just checking things out, and you know you're kind of like, you know, still trying to figure your way out in this whole Jesus thing and and all that stuff. But if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, then the image of the woman that is you. And this woman is in labor. And I love this. This is a fascinating sort of a picture, also with some Old Testament background. It's found in Isaiah. As a pregnant woman, about to give birth, writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence. Lord, we were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. So here's the nation of Israel. The prophet is saying that, that this is the people of God who are, it's as if they were giving birth and they were, they were writhing in pain and they were about to give birth. But instead of giving birth, they gave birth to wind. He says, goes on to say that we have not brought salvation to the earth and the people of the world have not come to life. So that's what that's what the people of God were supposed to be giving birth to. They were, they were in all of this labor pain, and God's people, they were supposed to give birth. And in a sense, 
Mary was able to fulfill that prophecy some 700 years after Isaiah said this by giving birth to Messiah. But this same thing applies now to us because we are the people of God who are writhing in pain. We are, we are, we are living in the midst of a hostile world. Will we give birth to wind? Or will, you, will, or will we, through our lives, our testimony, our work, will we be able to give birth to salvation? Will we bring salvation to the earth? Will the world come to life because of what we do here? Or will we, in fact, give birth to the wind? Will we bring salvation? There are so many people who are groaning under the weight of the pressure of this world right now. And it was, it's not unlike Mary and Joseph in the manger scene. I mean, we were talking about a very difficult time in human history. The people of God were under Roman occupation. There was all sorts of heartache and discord and strife politically and otherwise. And they groaned out. And in the midst of that, Mary and the people of God gave birth to the Messiah and gave us the first advent. And that same opportunity exists for us now. We get to bring about the presence of Messiah through us as his representatives here in the world. And I think many people are using these difficult days to do just that. Story after story after story we hear of people. I know there are some that aren't, right? Some of us, because of all the pressure, we're kind of like pulling back and we're circling the wagons and we're kind of like just handling our own thing and just barely keeping it together. But there are so many other followers of Christ who are, who are using these days and these opportunities to press deeper into people's lives and into their needs and to talk more boldly about the coming Messiah. They're giving birth to God's salvation in that way. And then we get the dragon. Revelation 12, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Of course, we see the seven heads this talks about the perfections of his evil. We've seen that number show up many, many times already in the, in the book of Revelation. It also has multiple heads because it manifests in so many different ways. It has the ten horns, which means he's got complete and perfect power. So he's perfectly wicked and perfectly powerful. And he has crowns, which means that the dragon has authority. He rules and he reigns. Now, there are many ancient myths about dragons and the heroes that would slay them. In fact, even in Greek and Roman mythology, there were the Caesars who had, who had crushed the neck of the great dragons. And I, I think there's no doubt that that imagery is all part and parcel of what this is supposed to, to tell us, except that we have to really consider the Old Testament background to get our most salient and powerful images, because this still points us back to the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, of Genesis. And the point in all of it, I'm not going to tell you, talk too much about that dragon. We did that under, uh, under Revelation 13 in a previous message. You can pick that up online as well. But the point of all of this is that this is a formidable foe, a formidable enemy. 
Many of you will know Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. He says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Martin Luther captures this moment in the Revelation. He just says, this is the enemy that we face, a formidable foe filled with hatred, and not one on earth is his equal. Which for us is what enters that next image in verse 5. She gave birth to a son. He'll rule the nations with an iron scepter, her child, was snatched up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God. Keep that little thought, that little phrase, the wilderness and the place prepared uh, for her by God in the back of your mind. While, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. By the way, there are a few phrases in this text that link it back to Psalm 2. In fact, there's a phrase here that talks about the iron scepter, and he uses this phrase, this phrase, God and his Christ, or God and his Messiah, or his anointed one. And that's only used in the Old Testament in Psalm 2. And so it's as if John is lifting that right out of the Old Testament to put our minds back into Psalm 2 so that we can figure out who this child really is. Look at verse 8. <coughs> Ask me. I'm sorry, not verse 8. This is Psalm 2, verse 8. I'll just read it to you. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. There's that same word. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the Son, for he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That refuge in him, that's the same idea of the wilderness. But this passage had long been recognized by the rabbis as the messianic psalm par excellence. That's what's going on here. This is that child. And that is the type of rule. He'll be able to smash his enemies with an iron scepter, a rod of iron. You see, the child is the fulfillment of the promises, and he is the only match for the dragon. The only match. Martin Luther, he captures this as well. He said, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And yet what we see throughout history and in this very moment, people choose to go against the dragon on their own. Some of you even right here, right now, you've decided that the Jesus thing is too far for you. It's too much of a commitment. It's too much of a life situation change. It's too much, ah, oh, the family, what would they say? Some of you who are watching online, you've been, you've been directed here. People have said, hey, go check this out, and you're checking it out. Or maybe you've been with us for a few weeks, and you're saying, you know what? I like the Jesus thing, but I don't really want to get too serious about it. I don't want to get, get too far down that road, because, you know, it gets a little weird with all that Jesus stuff. 
And when you do that, you are choosing to go against the dragon on your own. And on earth, there, there is no equal to his power. Kiss the sun. So many are resisting the advent of Jesus in their lives today, this very moment. In fact, you could be sitting here, you could be watching right now, and you could be getting a sense like, man, there's something going on here. Like, I feel like there's something I'm supposed to be doing. And this is Jesus saying, I am I'm trying to come and arrive in your life, and yet you keep me at arm's length. I want to advent with you now. Don't resist him. See, when Jesus, the ruler, advents, when he arrives with us, the dragon gets a thrashing. That's what we see in verse 7. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down that word you're going to see this again and again that ancient serpent called the devil or satan who leads the whole world astray he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him look at verse 12 but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child look at verse 17 then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. I have kind of have this picture in my head. I, it's from a whole lot of different verses uh, you know, throughout the Bible uh, as to when all of this sort of took place, like this epic battle. And so this is a little bit outside of like what the scriptures clearly teach, so it might be heretical. So just it's like a little aside here for just a moment. Uh, and so don't like to write this down. It's like, Robert said the Bible didn't say. Anyway, I'm, I'm acknowledging that up front. So don't like snip it out and just edit it. Anyway, so here's what I'm thinking. I think this battle actually took place, really took place, way back in the ancient distant history, somewhere after Genesis 1-1, but before Genesis 1-2. I think there was, in fact, an epic battle. Some have even said that the, that the heavenly armies are, are in three divisions and that Satan was one of those archangels. And so now we're getting kind of out there in, in interpretive ideas and mythologies and stuff like that. But that that, that was the one-third of the angels that actually fell. And when they fell, they were thrown to the earth. And with that destruction came, came the wiping out of the earth that existed before. So that when we pick up the story in Genesis, the earth is this watery mess. There's nothing left on it. It's just, it's a, it's a planet of chaos represented by the water. And it was there that we're told that God pulled the land out from the sea. And if any of this has anything to do with the, with the kind of these mysterious little scripture verses that are kind of peppered throughout the whole of the Bible, if any of this is even remotely accurate, that means that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 were actually God's Normandy. It was D-Day. You see, Satan was, in fact, the prince of the power of the air and, in fact, the ruler of this planet. And when God set up Eve, Adam and Eve in Eden in the midst of this watery, chaotic earth, he was, he was setting up a foothold in enemy territory. And he put Adam, his icon, his image bearer, there on the planet 
with a plan to take over the whole of the planet from Satan's dominion. So yes, the dragon is upset because he knows his time is short because where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Christ, will not fail. He mentions this 1,260 days. And a lot of people, I know there's a whole lot of interpretation. I'm going to keep this in the stuff that isn't necessarily true biblically category. So I'll just move away from the God's word uh, for just a second. Because there's a whole lot of talk about this. It's like, Is it mid-tribulation? Is this a tribulation period? And is it a seven-year period? Is it a three-and-a-half period? And some of you know what I'm talking about because you kind of grew up in these circles. And I grew up in these circles. And so I know a whole lot of this. Like, is it, has it happened before the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation, the pre-post-tribulation? And, and if, if you, go to, you go to a church in my day based on whether or not you were pre-mid or post-tribulationism and all that. Chris knows exactly what I'm talking about because, you know, we knew that Jesus could come back at the end of the, before the end of this service in the churches that, that he and I were a part of kind of growing up. But all, this is like, there's a whole lot of really interesting things to talk about and is the 1,260 days, is it any of this kind of stuff? I'm a pan-tribulationist, just for the record. Does anybody know what a pan-tribulationist is? I'm not me, pre, mid, or post. I'm a pan tribute. I think it's all going to pan out in the end, and so we're not even going to worry about any of these kinds of things as to when all, all this happens. It's going to all pan out. Don't worry. The point that matters here, and this is right here in the scriptures. This isn't just like Robert's heretical moment, but this is really what takes place is that the dragon is thrown down. He's hurled. He's bounced from heaven. Because whenever the Messiah shows up, the dragon gets trounced. He knows his time is short. He's ticked. He's dangerous. Like a caged and a rabid animal. Eugene Peterson, he says that this is St. John's spirit-appointed task to supplement the work of St. Matthew and St. Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, not domesticated into worldliness. This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Listen, if you put a toddler in time out, he'll start thrashing about. That doesn't mean that he's going to win and get his way. Cheryl and I, we, had a, we went over to dinner with some friends a while back, and uh, and uh, we, uh, they were talking about their toddler, and they were like, oh, man, he's been really, really difficult, and, you know, he's kind of like pitches a fit, and, you know, we had three boys, so we kind of know what that was like, and, and we're like, really, because he seems like a perfect angel, <laughs> like, he's just so good, I feel like you, maybe you're overstating it a little bit, and they're like, no, 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 he, gets, he, he thrashes about, and, like, he's really hard, he's uncontrollable, and, and all of this kind of a thing. And we were like, I don't know. He looks like a pretty great kid. I think maybe you're overreacting as parents. And so we, let, we had a great evening. He was an absolute perfect gentleman of a toddler. And uh, when, when we left, we were not even home. I mean, we were in the car maybe one minute and they sent us a video. <laughs> and they were right. And uh, he, he was thrashing about and throwing himself down on the ground. And, and you look at that, and with a toddler, you think, oh, it's a little frustrating, but it's also super cute. And I hope these videos will exist when we get to show them later on in life what they were really like. And, and uh, it's really fun. But here, listen, the, the toddler thrashing about and, and kicking up dust and, and yelling and pitching a fit, it just shows that you're the parent. You're already, you already won. Because you have the authority. And though they can thrash about, 
It doesn't actually mean they win. Martin Luther, he captured this same idea. He said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure one little word shall fell him. It might not always feel that way, my friends, but it is true and it's why we can have joy. Joy and joy inexpressible. In fact, when Advent arrives, God's people are filled with an inexpressible joy. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, this is so key, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Verse 12, look at this. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the turret. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And he tells us, therefore, rejoice. You're like, what? Rejoice? How is it we can rejoice? We're, we learn that he is the deceiver. He's been lying to us. From the beginning, it says in verse 9 that he leads the world astray. We find out that he is the accuser. So he's been standing in heaven before the throne of God, and he has been calling you out by name. And he's been calling you out by name. And he's saying, look, this is, you call this person your child? Look what they're doing. And Satan stands before the throne of God, and he's accusing you. And he's the murderer. You're telling us we should rejoice in this? This formidable enemy who deceives, accuses, and murders. But here's the thing. The deceiver falls before the truth. In verse 11, it says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That means that they held fast to the truth. That the word of the testimony. They're holding fast to the truth of God. And they're not believing the enemy's lies. And so instead, they know the truth, and they speak the truth, and they walk in the truth, and they, what they hold to is what Jesus says about you and about God. And when you hold to the truth, the deceiver doesn't win. The deceiver always falls before the truth. How about him as the accuser? Well, the accuser has been bounced from God's presence. We already saw that five, six times. This text says he was hurled down, he was thrown down, he was shut down, he was thrown out. He has been bounced from God's presence. And this is such a beautiful picture because here he is standing before you. And you know what he's doing? He's accusing you 
of unworthiness and of sin and of rebellion against God. And here's the thing, he's right. You have done all those things. And in fact, you aren't worthy. See, he takes this real truth about you and about me and he stands before the throne of God and he just plays that over and over and he stands to you and he whispers in your ear constantly, you're not worthy, you've done bad, you've done wrong, you're unworthy. He speaks these half-truths. See, that is right. But someone else now stands at the right hand of the Father. We're told that Jesus has taken up that position and he stands before the Father and he says, no, 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 Larry's mine. Joe, you're mine. I'm not going to let Satan continue to accuse. They're mine. I've already paid the price. What did it say there? You saw it. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. You want to know how you get past the accuser? You trust in the blood of the lamb. And the murderer, it says it in verse 15, they tried, he tried to sweep her away. But instead, the murderer is flung far, far from us. And so there is no, now no fear of death. There's no fear of missing out on whatever it is that the world was supposed to offer us. You want to know how we overcome it? Because that's what all of this is about. You want to know how we overcome this? It's right there in verse 11. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. <coughs> they do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You guys know that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you, right? Right? You guys know that? Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Can you just say that with me? Death is not the worst thing that can happen to, not me, don't say, no, you have to say me, because I know you have to say it because it's true about you as well. So death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. That's the promise of the scriptures. We did not love our lives so much as to shrink back from death. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you believe the deceiving and accusing and murdering dragon. And you turn your back on Jesus. That you refuse to let him advent with you. Kill me if you must, because in the end we do not lose. Martin Luther, he caught this as well. He said... That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The scriptures, they promise that we will be caught up the wings of an eagle will be protected and nourished in the wilderness. There is joy unspeakable for the followers of Jesus who anxiously await his arrival. 